This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Arizona State University tourism professor Evan Jordan. If you're interested in learning more about being an intelligent traveler, head over to the website at gotripdoctor.com where you can find travel planning resources, a blog about all things travel, and a traveler personality quiz. Have you ever heard the terms lineup, dropping in, or snaking? If not, you might have a lot to learn before you get on a board and try your hand at surfing while you travel. Whether it's your first time or you're regular on the waves, surfing while you travel is a great option to get some exercise, get a feel for the local beach culture, and meet new and interesting people. As surf tourism has grown rapidly over the past several years, there's an increasing amount of research being done about cultural norms at surf breaks and the impacts of surf tourism on people, the economy, and the environment. My guest today is Dr. Lindsay Usher, an assistant professor at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Lindsay is an amateur surfer and former professional kayak surfer and does research on surf tourism throughout the world. Lindsay took the time to talk with me about her research on the impacts of surf tourism and has some great tips about surf etiquette if you're thinking about giving it a shot. I would say that there there well-recognized surfing rules around the world. There is some variation from place to place, but I would say that most people recognize a certain set of rules, especially when you're at a place like a point break where there's a very clear lineup. Um, you know, there's one peak, you line up, you take turns, you, you don't drop in front of anybody. Um, whereas some places like beach breaks, you have a bunch of different peaks and everybody can spread out. And so it's a totally different dynamic. But again, even at all of those break, like point break, beach break, reef break, whatever, you know, whether you're having to share a peak with a surfer or not, you know, there's some universal rules. I, I really am curious, as a person who is a surfer, where's the coolest place that you've ever surfed? So I would have to say that the coolest place I have surfed, maybe the most unique, is Ireland. Uh, and the reason that I was in Ireland was because I used to be a competitive surf kayaker and for those of you who don't know what that is, that's the vast majority of the population. It's basically riding waves in a kayak, similar to what you do on a surfboard. You're just in a kayak that is highly specialized. And so I've uh, competed in uh, about four world championships, three of which were not in the United States. And one of those was in Ireland. And I have to say that's probably just the coolest place that I've served. Not only was the surf quality really good, but it was also just, I don't think a lot of people have been there to surf. And so I think it's kind of unique and, you know, and I'd love to go back and, and, and surf there again. So, yeah. This is not like when I think of the best surf destinations in the world ireland is not the first place that comes to mind like how big are the waves there compared to other places uh the waves in ireland can actually get pretty big um there was a movie that came out i believe in it must have been 2003 or 2004 called step into liquid and it was supposed to be sort of a follow-up to some of the endless summer movies and they actually do, I think, toe-in surfing in Ireland. 
And so it's actually, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's become a thing <laughs> and, and, and people do go there to surf. And there's, there's quite a few local surfers that live in Ireland too. So are you like freezing your buns off out there in the North Atlantic or like, <laughs> do you wear a really thick wetsuit or how does that work? So, well, when I was there, I was kayaking and I wear a little bit different gear when I'm kayaking compared to when I'm surfing. So where I'm, when I'm surfing, I wear the wetsuit that you've probably seen a lot of surfers wear. It's really better for that. But when I'm kayaking, I wear a dry top. And so normally under a dry top and it's meant to keep the water out. Whereas with a wetsuit, you're trying to keep the water in and that keeps in your body heat. But with a dry suit, you're trying to keep the water out and you generally have layers of fleece underneath. And so we had all dressed really warm. You know, we were planning on the water being really cold. But on the northwest coast of Ireland, there's actually the Gulf Stream that runs up there. And so the water was surprisingly warm. It was probably in the 60s. And we were prepared for it to be much colder, more like even in the 40s or 50s. And so it was it was actually quite pleasant, <laughs> much to our surprise. Uh, that's just like, it's fascinating to me that there's so many places in the world that you could surf and Ireland, Ireland happens to be one of them. Um, someplace that I would not normally think of as a, as a surf destination. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what's the difference? So prior to meeting you, I don't think I've ever met a, uh, surf kayaker or kayak, kayak surfer. How do I say that? Yes. Either one. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met a surf kayaker. And like, what's the difference between surfing on a board and surfing on a kayak? Well, I mean, there's quite a few differences, really. I mean, the, the board, it's sort of different skill sets as well. So with kayaking, I really had to get to the point where I could do a roll, which is probably the hardest thing that you do in terms of there's all kinds of maneuvers you can perform on the wave. But a lot of that is contingent on you being able to roll the boat, boat back over so that you're upright. <laughs> so that's probably the primary skill you have to learn if you're going to do surf kayaking. Wait, so you're you're upside down? Yeah. And so, well, I mean, so when the wave, you know, if you're riding a wave and you get flipped over, you have to be able to flip yourself upright. And so that's when you roll. It's just like in whitewater kayaking. If you've seen people, you know, roll over in the river and that sort of thing, it's the same thing when you're surfing, you've got to be able to roll yourself back up. So ideally you want to stay upright, <laughs> but you don't always. And so, so that's, uh, that's one of the things you have to learn. And, but other than that, there's a lot of, you're doing a lot of the same surfing maneuvers when you're doing, you know, bottom turns, top turns, you're, uh, you know, doing cutbacks and there's a, a lot of similarities between surf moves. We would even have, you know, people who judge regular board surfing contests be our judges because we're doing the same things, but it's just, it kind of requires different things. And then with surfing, I mean, the biggest thing, I would say the biggest barrier a lot of people face is just being able to stand up. You know, a lot of people can ride a boogie board or, you know, body surf or anything like that. But when it comes to surfing, the primary thing that you've got to get down is the whole standing up thing. And so, and then once you get that, then, you know, the rest is just learning how to, you know, ride the actual wave. And so that's, uh, those, that's that, that, those are the biggest differences I would say between those two things. But in terms of the wave riding that you're doing, it's very similar. 
I have to say your analysis of the biggest barrier to board surfing uh, fits me fairly well because I lived in Hawaii for a couple of years and I bought this big giant longboard because I'm six seven and right. I was terrible at it. Like I, I, I couldn't stand up. Every time I try and stand up, I'd fall over and my board would shoot out from under me and I'd, you know, almost injure somebody. And that's how I found out that surfing wasn't for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big, a big thing. And it's kind of interesting because right now you've seen a lot of people do the stand up paddle boarding and, you know, quite a few people are doing that on flat water, but you'll see them in the surf as well. And it's actually fairly difficult to use in the surf. I, I have never managed to ride a stand-up paddleboard on a wave, but I can just paddle a stand-up paddleboard around. But a lot of older surfers who have knee problems have actually moved into stand-up paddleboarding because they can just stand the whole time and they don't have to do the pop-up movement like they did on regular surfing. And so that that takes a lot of that pressure off. They can just stand up the whole time and then they're able to surf on the stand-up paddleboard. So it's kind of an interesting thing that's, that's happened uh, with that trend. Maybe this is something like maybe I should have learned just from the beginning to stand up paddleboard surf. Like maybe I made maybe, a mistake. Yeah, maybe that maybe that was the key. <laughs> <laughs> so is there is there like a really big community of of surf kayakers? Uh, it's not huge. <laughs> and I think that's why a lot of people have never heard of it. Um, it's the it's interestingly enough, the biggest community is probably in the United Kingdom. And I say that because they produce probably the most teams that come to Worlds. So Ireland has a team. Northern Ireland has a team. The tiny island of Jersey has a team. Wales has a team. England has a team. Scotland has a team. So, And a lot of those teams are sponsored by governments. It's sort of like the Olympics. They they like sponsor a team to go. And so they have all this fancy gear and they're like, yeah, we got a grant from the government for this. So, Are you getting the same sort of support in the U.S. as a, as a world-class surf kayaker? I mean, it definitely, well, I, I haven't done it in a while. I haven't competed in, in probably, when was the last time? I guess seven years was the last time I competed. So it's it's been a while. But yeah, I mean, a lo- I've seen it, it really been, I think, a sort of a downturn in the East Coast scene. I'm, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of people that do it. And I just haven't really heard much about competitions going on. It's, I mean, California has definitely had the longest running community of surf kayakers. But I mean, you just really don't see when I had a sponsorship, it was just a discount on a boat. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was about it. And I mean, we got when as a team, we got gear because, you know, some of the members of the team were gear reps. And so they were able to get us a team sponsorship. So we got a lot of free gear and that sort of thing. But I mean, it, unless you're making the kayaks, it would really be impossible to do it as, you know, a professional full-time job. So that would be tricky. All right. So surfing and surf kayaking, like, are those the primary place, like destinations where you can do one of those two things? Are those the primary places that you want to go in the future? Or like, what's the number one place on your, on your to travel to lists? 
Oh, that's that's tricky. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I would say that surfing is a big motivator for me <laughs> in terms of travel. That I that I like to try and find places where you know where there is surf, and and if there's not, I guess I have a hard time justifying why I would travel there. <laughs> we we re- my husband and I recently when we were trying to figure out where we wanted to go on our honeymoon, he does not surf. And he's asking me, you know, are you willing to go to a place with no surf? And I'm like, ah, maybe it would depend on if there's other stuff to do. And so so we managed to compromise, which was Ecuador. And so we spent four days in the mountains, which is what he likes. And then we spent four days on the coast, which is what I like. And unfortunately, I didn't hit any really great surf while we were there. And I also had a lot of trouble finding a board. Um, but uh, but but that was our, our most recent compromise. But I would say that surfing is definitely my biggest motivator in, in going places. Um, and I'm trying to think where I would want to go next. There's so many places. I would love to go back to New Zealand. Um, I'm really interested in going to... Um, other places in South America, I really, I've, I've lived in Central America and spent a lot of time there. Um, and, and it's, it's wonderful. It's like a second home to me. Um, but I'd, I'd really like to explore Latin America more and I've never been to Africa and there's, I mean, in the endless summer, they supposedly found quote unquote, the perfect wave (laughs) in, uh, in South Africa, but there's a lot of other great surf, uh, throughout Africa. And so I, I would be interested in, in going there. There as well. It seems like there's so so many different places around the world that you could go for for surf tourism. I mean, all you need is a wave, right? That's pretty much it. Exactly. Yes. How, how long have you been surfing or surf kayaking? Is this like a lifelong pursuit for you? Pretty much. Uh, I have been surf kayaking since let's see, probably around uh, I want to say 1995. Um, and so, and then I've been regular board surfing since 2008. And so both, you know, I've, I've been doing, uh, one form of surfing, you know, the majority of my life. And how did you, how did you become a surf tourism researcher? Because there's not, there's not a ton of people who do research on surf tourism. I mean, it's becoming a much more popular subject for people to do research on. But how did you become a researcher on this? Was it just you love surfing and you happen to be going to graduate school for this sort of thing? Or just tell, tell us a story of how this happened. So the story of how this happened was when I was in, so before I went to grad school, I actually did Peace Corps and I was an ecotourism facilitator in Peace Corps. That was my job as a volunteer. I, where, where were you in Peace Corps? I was in Guatemala, okay. the one Central American country with very little surf. <laughs> and, uh, and so so I did the Peace Corps about a year and a half after, after out of college. And, and I, I was an ecotourism facilitator. And so I worked in this, this little community in central Guatemala 
and I worked with the local municipal office and I helped them get up a website. The reason they had become sort of a backpacker tourism destination and a domestic tourism destination was because they had two national parks right there. They had a system of caves, then they had this other sort of limestone bridge where there were lots of pools in it. I, I can't even describe it. It was just this kind of natural wonder that they had turned into a national park. And so they had assigned, um, you know, volunteers there so that, you know, we could help them promote tourism. And by the time I got there, there had been two volunteers before me and it was already becoming a pretty well-known backpacker stop. And so, so I helped them get up the website. I worked with a couple of women's groups there doing stuff like um, sanitary food preparation, but also working with another women's group and they made local products like, like chocolate and chili and cardamom and hats out of palm and that sort of thing. Um, and so as I was, as I was doing this, um, I would have my dad send me surfer magazine <laughs> and since that was as close to surfing as I could get a lot of the time. And, uh, and so, you know, I, so I just, I'd read those and I remember I read, I'm pretty sure at that time that I read about Jess Ponting and he is the guy that started the center for surf research at San Diego state university. Um, and it said he had done his dissertation on surf tourism. And I was like, sign me up. What is this? <laughs> and at the time I'd already been considering going back to grad school and I figured, you know, I could, I could do research similar to what I was doing in Peace Corps and, and then I'd also teach. And, and so I, I thought that sounded like a pretty good gig. And so I'd started applying to programs in tourism. And, and when I got there, I knew that surf tourism was really what I wanted to study. And, and the advantage being that I'd worked with a local community, I had Spanish, and I was really interested in looking at you know, the community's experience of surf tourism and how that was affecting them, how they'd, you know, uh, sort of how they'd gotten involved in surf tourism, if they surfed and all of that sort of thing. And so that's, that's sort of the, the quick version of, <laughs> of how I got to where I am. <laughs> that's, it's fascinating because everybody has a different path to becoming a tourism researcher. It seems like there's not one well-defined uh, pathway that people take, you know, there's not like a pipeline from an undergraduate degree to graduate school to then doing tourism research. Everybody seems to find their passion out in the world and then come back to school and, and learn how to do research about it, um, yeah, which I think exactly. is is really cool about tourism research. So I've, I've been looking through all of the research that you've done, and it's quite a substantial amount of, of research. And you've done research on anything from the impact of surf tourism on destinations to territoriality in the surf break. Tell us a little bit about the more major findings that you've had over the past several years that you've been doing this research. So, I mean, one of the main things that I've looked at, as I mentioned, is I have a very community focus to my research. I've I helped out a friend with one paper on surf tourist, but, and I'm, I'm sure other researchers have talked to you about this as well, but to me, there's sort of two sides of the tourism research equation. You've got the tourist behavior people who research the tourist, and then you've got the host community 
researchers who research the host community. And so I'm definitely on that host community side. And what I am, I've been really interested in my research is looking at local surfers perspectives, because I think it is, it is fascinating to me. I think a lot of a lot of the stuff you see about tourism impacts is all this stuff like, oh, you know, this tourism is having an impact on these people and here's how it's affecting their lives and that sort of thing. But with surfing, it's like a lot of places, the locals have come and they've adopted surfing. I don't think you see that everywhere when tourism comes in. I don't think the locals take it up everywhere. And so I I think that's fascinating. And I think that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to look at, at, at local surfers, but also the whole localism thing, which is, as you mentioned, territoriality you know, that, that, that comes into play too. And so that's, that's sort of why I've focused on that. Cause I think it's interesting to look at the agency of those local surfers and how they've taken surfing and used it for their own benefit and, and enjoyment. And, and instead of just letting it be all these surf tourists are going to come in and ruin my life. And, uh, and so, so localism, as you mentioned with the territoriality, is basically territoriality of surfers. Now, the thing that a lot of people don't realize and that I've found in my research and other studies have found this as well, is that localism exists on a continuum. It's not that at every surf break, somebody's going to slash your tires and come after you and threaten to kill you because you're going to surf at their surf break. I mean, there's, there's a wide variety of localism and it's not all the same. And like I said, I have found this out. Most of the places that I've done research, it's a, it's mild and at the worst it's moderate localism. And so I've never done research where, People would not allow tourists to surf there. Uh, And I I think a big part of that is because I've been in major surf tourism destinations where they realize the benefit they receive from tourism and it would not be in their best interest to try to force tourists off the surf break. Um, But but the so the forms of localism I've seen are more mild to moderate. And it's stuff like locals will drop in and that means cut in front of surfers on a, you know, tourist surfers on a wave. Um, or they'll, you know, they might, there might be some verbal, uh, you know, if somebody violates the rules, a local might call somebody out on it or something like that. And so it's just kind of these subtle ways that they try to exert dominance over the break. And that's a lot of what I've seen, um, in the places where I've done research. And it's, it's really interesting too, because, in um, Costa Rica and Nicaragua, where I've done most of my localism research, what you see is actually another group of quote unquote locals are these resident foreigners or what some people call expats, expatriates. And they'll come in and they actually start to um, exert localism over tourists. And that's fascinating because they moved in there. They're not native. And, and they're suddenly trying to tell a, a tourist that it's their surf break and, you know, they need to behave and all of that sort of thing. And so in both the places that I've done research, that's one of the most interesting things is sort of the the interaction between locals and expats as well as between expats and tourists. And so I think 
what a lot of people don't realize is that there's, you know, a lot of these places are very complex in, you know, in the interactions that people have in the surf. And so I would say those are my kind of big takeaway points from my work in, in Central America in terms of localism and that sort of thing. How much um, can I, can I ask how much of that um, localism or territorialism is related to, I think you mentioned like breaking the rules or what, what are the norms on a surf break? And this is something that I, I, when I started to learn how to surf, you know, I tried to go like online and learn about like the lingo, like what are all these terms that people are using, like dropping in or uh, whatever it may be. So how much of that do you think is related to the norms in different places? Like, are they different? all over the place like you know certain places there's a lineup other places there's not a lineup like how is that different in in different surf breaks and how does that contribute to how people exert their control over these surf breaks i mean it's huge and i would say that there there well-recognized surfing rules around the world. There is some variation from place to place, but I would say that most people recognize a certain set of rules, especially when you're at a place like a point break where there's a very clear lineup. Um, you know, there's one peak, you line up, you take turns, you, you don't drop in front of anybody. Um, whereas some places like beach breaks, you have a bunch of different peaks and everybody can spread out. And so it's a totally different dynamic. But again, even at all of those breaks, like point break, beach break, reef break, whatever, you know, whether you're having to share a peak with a surfer or not, you know, there's some universal rules. Could you tell us, like, what what are those rules? If if somebody is thinking about becoming a surf tourist, uh, can you give them like a couple of basics things that they should know if they want to not break etiquette? Sure. So the biggest one is not dropping in. So if somebody is riding the wave and that person has to be, so the person closest to the peak, so that's where the wave is starting to break, and many times it started breaking, um, and so the person closest to the peak where the wave is either cresting or starting to break is the one that has the right of way. And so anybody else should not cut in front of that person further down the line. So that's the biggest one. Um, and it's funny in many different countries, there are different names for this, <laughs> for what you do when you're, when you're, uh, when you snake somebody on a, or you, you know, cut in front of somebody on a wave. And so, so that's kind of the biggest one, um, you know, depending on where you are again at a point break, it's wait your turn. So, you know, you can't take a wave, paddle back out and take another one. You've got to wait in line. Now people violate that rule all the time. I mean, they also drop in on other people all the time. So these rules get violated, but you know, I mean, there's, there's certain ones that you really, the, the drop in rule is, is pretty, pretty, uh, much the, the big one. But the other one is if you're paddling out into the surf break, whoever is surfing in has the right of way. So you have to get out of their way. They're going to probably ride around you, but it's your responsibility to try to get out of their way because they have the right of way. And so those are kind of the big ones. The other big one is to respect the locals. Um, and that's, that's incredibly huge. And, you know, locals really appreciate 
especially in the places where I've been. So Costa Ricans, Nicaraguans that, you know, if people speak to them in their native language in Spanish, um, and that's throughout the world, if you, you know, and that's any tourism, really, I think you get a lot more respect as a tourist if you know the language. And so if you, and I think in surf race, especially, I think if you just acknowledge the locals and, and, you know, ask them how they're doing and, and sort of reach out and try to be friendly, I think you're going to get a lot more respect than if you just ignore them. Um, and so that's another thing that I find in surf destinations is locals feel like they have the right of way. And so they're the ones that, so, you know, if you're kind of vying for a local with a local on a wave, it's best to probably just let the local have the wave. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, if you're showing these signs of respect, a lot of times they'll come in and be like, Hey, you know, it's your turn, take that wave. Um, but it's really that deferring to the locals that, that will earn you a lot of respect and they'll be like, all right, this person is here. You know, they want to have a good time, but they're showing me respect. So I'm going to make sure they have a good time because they're a nice person and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So I think that can really take you a long way, um, when you're, when you're going to different surf destinations. So sort of a, you get back what you give in terms of respect for the norms. Exactly. Yeah. What about your research on the impact of surf tourism on communities? You said that's kind of your other area of expertise. Um, what did you find in, in that area of research? So um, so I've kind of found uh, different things in different places um, in terms of that. And, and really, I mean, I would say that's, that's sort of a, a, I don't know how to exactly put it, sort of a tangential aspect of my research. You know, it's sort of like what you find out when you're, when you're specifically focusing on the surfing. But, I mean, it's a lot of the same basic things they've found in a lot of tourism destinations um, and not just surf destinations, but other ones as well. You have things like, you know, once you have a lot of a lot of tourists coming in, you have increased land prices, increased cost of goods, increased cost of living, all of that sort of thing. So that can really affect people. But I mean, also you see stuff like people have jobs now. People can afford motorcycles. You know, people can get to work easily now and, and that sort of thing. So you see – you kind of see a lot of the good and the bad. Um, and, uh, unfortunately with a lot of surf places, you kind of see, you know, people sort of have this strong association with partying and surfers. And I have to say that in quite a few places that kind of tends to be true, <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of families that travel and go surfing and that sort of thing, but you do see a lot of sort of a younger crowd that likes to party. And unfortunately in a lot of destinations that has affected the local population. They think that that's how people live, you know, that, that, and I had, um, a woman that her parents were American, but she had been born and raised in Costa Rica. And so, I mean, she was really closer to being a Costa Rican than, a somebody from the U S and, and she told me, she's like, I've seen it happen with a lot of my friends. You know, they think that's how people really live and, you know, they just, they get into drugs and it, it destroys their lives. And so you see, so again, you see the good and the bad, um, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and it's interesting too. You'll also see 
with a lot of these places, you'll you'll see a lot of expats that move to these destinations for surfing. And so that raises the prices as well because they're not just tourists that are only staying for a little bit. They're coming there to live. And so you'll see a lot of, you know, expats becoming sort of part of the fabric of the community and you see a lot of intermarriage and that sort of thing. But then you'll see a lot of conflict too between say, you know, expats who are from the U S or Europe and the local culture. Uh, and so I've seen uh, quite a bit of that as well. Are there any other areas of your research that, you know, would be of interest to somebody who's thinking about being a, a surf tourist? I mean, I think one of the interesting things that, uh, that, other that other researchers in surfing have looked at and sort of has kind of become a part of my research is sort of the politics of surfing in in different countries and and I mean I this is kind of playing out right now in Nicaragua but uh you know for a long time that that country sort of began to support surf tourism and they realized how much money it could bring in and, and, and really support, you know, surf tourism and a lot of tourism development along the coast. Um, however, now in Nicaragua, they're having protests uh, for the government because Daniel Ortega has pretty much consolidated power and he refuses to leave and he's been in power since 2006 and so and and a lot of protesters have been killed i mean it's a really kind of devolving situation and what you're seeing along the coast is that there's no work for people because so many of those communities became dependent on tourism and now tourists are scared to go and the state department has travel warnings up and so nobody's going to nicaragua and so nobody's nobody has any work and so it's that sort of stuff that, um, and like I said, people have looked at this in other countries and sort of the, the influence of that. And I mean, look at Hawaii and, and how surfing played a role and that, you know, becoming a part of the U S and that sort of thing. But, uh, but I, I think that's another really interesting aspect of, uh, of surf tourism that, I would say has has entered into my work, but definitely other people have done a lot more work on that. Scott Latterman has done; he's a historian and has done quite a lot of work on that. Um, and uh, and I think that's a that's a fascinating aspect of it that definitely is worth considering um, when you know when you think about surf tourism destinations. So this is this is serious stuff. I mean, this is people's livelihoods. This is people's lives. Um, when yes. you're talking politics and its intersection with surf tourism. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's like I, a, a month ago or so I called up <laughs> the family that I stayed with in Nicaragua and I was asking my host mom how they were doing. And, you know, I mean, she has family in the capital and they're scared to go out and, you know, she's like, yeah, nobody has any work because all of the expats who had the businesses have left and, you know, and there are no tourists coming and, and that sort of thing. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's a, and she's like, and all the goods are expensive and, and every, and, and that sort of thing. And so it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you really realize how much this is intertwined with the community and their lives. And, and so it's, it's definitely a, a really serious thing. So if you had, let's say, one piece of advice for somebody who is either an experienced surfer or learning, wants to learn how to surf, what's the number one piece of advice that you would give them 
to be a good surf tourist? Like what, what is the number one thing that they would, should do to, uh, to be a good surf tourist? So I would, I would say, and I, I, this kind of echoes my previous comments and as well as a major theme that has emerged in my research and that's respect. And, and that's not only respect in the surf break, but also on the beach um, for the local community. I think that's a huge thing. I think a lot of surfers don't consider the local community when they go places. And, and I think that's a, that, that would be my major thing is, is just respect. And if possible, you know, try to, try to stay local. You know, if there's a Nicaraguan or a Costa Rican or whatever country you're going to that owns you know, a surf lodge or a surf camp or something like that, you know, stay with them, uh, and, and just, um, you know, and, and try to patronize local businesses and that sort of thing that are, uh, and I think that would be my, my biggest piece of advice. And I think that really all goes back to respect. And I mean, I think that probably extends to like the beach too. You see so many surfers involved in like beach cleanup projects. Um, but I would say that probably a lot of the stuff that's there could also be from surfers as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because that's, that kind of relates to localism a little bit as well. Um, in that, you know, one of the things I've found about localism is that, well, and other people have found this as well. I'm not, not the first person to make this connection, but you know, one of the things about localism is that, um, surfers having this possessiveness toward the places where they surf actually, you know, sort of motivates them to protect that place and do things like beach cleanup, you know, and, and do things like protest if, you know, a dock is being put in that's going to change their surf break and that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's a long documented history of surfers as activists, as environmental activists, um, working to protect the ocean and their surf breaks. Um, and people like, you know, Save the Waves and Surf Rider Foundation, all of those organizations were started by surfers because of this environmental ethic that many of them have. Um, but but you're right, there's kind of that other side that, you know, <laughs> that, you know, not all of them feel that way. <laughs> and And there's also, there also can be an environmental impact as well. But, you know, again, I think going back to, again, respect uh, is that I think I think that's the, the most important thing to observe when you travel. Well, this has been fascinating. I just want to say thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining me on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 